Okay, if you have Bibles with you, you can open up to Romans chapter 12. Last week, um, I gave the introduction to a new series of messages uh, on the topic of mercy. And it was titled, Mercy in Changing Seasons. And I told you that I had um, identified three voices from three very different streams of Christendom, all indicating the same thing. They all had a sense that there was a significant season of change uh, coming to the church, to the, to the wider church. And it caught my attention. These are three people that you'd, you'd just never see the three of them all at the same conference together. They just run in different circles. And so it just kind of caught my eye. And uh, the three people were uh, Wayne Jacobson, and he was coming very much from, from a relational paradigm. He sees the church changing from an institutional structure to a much more relational um, interaction between us and God. Phyllis Tickle, who is just this astonishing uh, 70-something church historian. I, had, I put up a video on Facebook, maybe uh, on, yeah, on Facebook. Some of you guys might have enjoyed it. Just brilliant mind. And she sees change coming from uh, change coming to the church from an historical perspective. And the final was uh, Arthur Burke, and he sees change again coming to the church as a whole from a prophetic circle. And so um, Burke communicates it this way: that we have uh, changed spiritual seasons, where Phil Tickle sees a five hundred year, basically five hundred year cycles in the church, and that historically, and that we're at the beginning of another 500-year cycle. Burke also sees us entering into a new season, spiritual season for the church. This is the language he uses, that we've changed from a ruler season to a mercy season. That's my connection to this topic of mercy in this teaching series. Ruler and mercy are the sixth and seventh gifts uh, referenced uh, in Romans 12, the, the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit from Romans chapter 12. Now, Burke, from his pr- pr- prophetic perspective, is going to see things a little bit more outside the box than, than either Jacobson or, or Tickle. Uh, but he sees the, the seven gifts referenced in Romans 12 paralleling seven seasons of church history. And he believes that in the early 21st century that we've entered into this mercy season for the church. So today, um, I want to continue this introduction into a series on mercy by taking a closer look at the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit um, from Romans chapter 12. So these are the sub-points I'll cover today. There are more than three, Tom. You can believe i got more than three points. It's almost sacrilegious that I have more than three points in a sermon. But we're going to... Um, we're going to look at gift lists in Scripture and look at the significance of the number seven, uh, the context of Paul's list in Romans 12. Why is he writing this there? And then look at some definitions and some personal application. So if you are open to Romans chapter 12, uh, please follow along uh, as I begin reading in verse 6. This is what Paul writes. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, then let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. 
If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern or rule diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So Lord, I thank you for your word and for the gifts of your spirit listed in your word. And Lord, I pray that your word would have its full impact on us and make us to be more like you. Amen? So there are seven gifts here. Uh, listed in verses 6 to 8 of Romans chapter 12, what's commonly known as uh, the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit. And those are prophet, servant, teacher, encourager, giver, ruler, and mercy. So there are other lists of spiritual gifts found in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verses 8 to 10, uh, Paul lists what are known as either just the spiritual gifts. Some commentators will refer to them as charismatic gifts. And they are wisdom, knowledge, discernment, faith, healing, and miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Paul kind of expands on that list in verse 28 where, where he says, And God has placed... In the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helps, of guidance, and of kinds, of different kinds of tongues. Pretty extensive list just in that one chapter, right? But it's not the only list. Ephesians chapter 4 has another list of gifts. And these are often called ministry gifts or office gifts, where it says that God has given these gifts to men. And what's listed there, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, it's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Um, I made reference already to the redemptive gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12. Some people refer to them as the motivational gifts. And it's worth repeating, we'll be going back to these, but it's prophet and servant, teacher, encourager, ruler, giver, ruler, and mercy. And I want to add another list here from the Old Testament. Though not specifically listed as gifts, their manifestations in our lives certainly, certainly would be gifts of the Spirit. And so in Isaiah 11, verse 2, there, there's listed uh, what's called the seven spirits of God. And so you have the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So you can see in these different lists, I mean, throughout Scripture, there's a bunch of these lists of gifts of the Spirit, right? There's some overlap on these lists. And so, as prevalent as spiritual gifts are to the, to the New Testament narrative, it's difficult to support. I mean, you've got to do some theological gymnastics. It's difficult to support any theological perspective that either outright rejects the gifts of the Spirit or marginalizes them. Right? I mean, you can't really do that based purely on the Word of God. It's, it's in there. It's in the book. You just you have to contend with it one way or the other. Now, as a pastor, I've spent like the last 20 years of my life pastoring prophetic people. You know what? 
They're messy. People with prophetic gifts are messy. Sometimes because the gifts are unusual, and sometimes because the person God tends to use are so broken. You know? <laughs> and so the, the gifts of the Spirit can be messy. And most of my pastor friends over the years, you know what, pastors, we don't like messy. Because it makes our job harder, right? But see, you got some wackadoo in your church running around saying they're talking for God. He can really mess things up. He can really push people's buttons. I mean, it could be true of almost any of the gifts, but revelatory gifts got to be at the top there. And so for that reason, boy, I can easily understand why some pastors and some leaders have just decided, we'll just ignore this stuff, you know? I can remember a season in my own life when we had moved from West Virginia to take over a vineyard church in Washington. I had about had it with prophetic people. They had just about wrung me out. And I can, there's a tape somewhere, I'm sure they could find it, where one of my early sermons there, I said, look, let's learn how to love God. Let's learn how to love one another. And if the gifts of the Spirit show up, that's fine. You know, my, my, this was my mindset. This is where I was at at the time. I was done, man. You know, they just, you know, taking its toll on me. So I saw loving God and loving one another as the meat and the potatoes. And for me at that point, the gifts of the Spirit were garnish. You know, if you want to put a little sprig of parsley on that, that'll be fine. But that's about where I was at at the time. So I can understand people have had bad experiences or they're frustrated. They just don't want to have to deal with the mess. They disregard them. But then what do we do about what's in the book here? We got all these lists. What do we do with these lists? Do we just we just black them out? We cut, rip those pages out of our book? What do we do about that? If we want to be a, I don't know, an honest student of Scripture, we really just can't pick and choose cafeteria style the text we like and the text we don't. We have to do something to contend with it. The fact that the gifts are messy are not a valid excuse to dismiss them. The fact that the gifts are messy is screaming for the need of maturity. That somebody has to step up and say, okay, this thing is messy, but I'll father it. Right? I'll nurture it. I'll bring, I'll bring instruction to it. I'll provide wise and healthy boundaries to it. So I've challenged pastor friends of mine over the years. I tell them, look, you may not feel comfortable with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but then you still have to decide what you're going to do with biblical texts like 1 Corinthians 14.1, where it says to pursue love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. I got so many of my friends, they just want to cut that little page right out. They don't want to edit that with all they got. They don't have anything to do with eagerly desiring spiritual gifts. And of all the gifts, the messiest of them, prophecy. Can't we just ignore it? And, well, they can, but it's disingenuous. There's a better way. You know, if it's in the book, if there really is not just a father and a son, but also a Holy Spirit, and he really has gifts for his children, then there's got to be a right way to do this. There's got to be something in God's design, in his heart and his purpose, where this works, and it's healthy, <laughs> and it's life-giving, even if it's messy. 
I really want to find out what that is. And for me personally, I can't give up on it. The Greek word translated here in 1 Corinthians 14, where it says eagerly desire spiritual gifts, the Greek word that translated desire is uh, zeleo, and spelled Z-E-L-O-O. What English word does that sound like? Sounds like zeal, right? That's where we get the English word zeal. And it means to burn with zeal, to be zealous and to pursue them. It means to desire earnestly, to pursue, to strive after. No matter how you shake interpreting that word, eagerly desire, it's not passive. It's passionate. It's purposed. It's intentional. Right? So, my, my heart is this. I think God's in the gifts. I think they're... I think there's a priceless resource of the nature of God, of the presence and the power of God that's available to us. And I think there's a healthy and right and holy and love, above all else, loving way of employing the gifts in the life of our body and then outside the four walls of our church. That's, that's where I want to go. So today I'll be focusing on Paul's list from Romans 12 what's referred to as the motivational or redemptive gifts in verses 6 to 8. But before I get there, first let me just, you know, the seven redemptive gifts. Let me make a, some commentary on the significance of the number seven. So, do numbers have biblical or spiritual significance? Some people might think they do. Some people might not. Well, when do numbers first appear? Well, they, their first appearance is the very beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 1. God himself numbered the days. Right? Why did he do that? He could have just said a day passed, and then another day passed, and then another day after that passed. But for some reason, he numbered them the first day, and the second day, and the third day. I get if that happened from the very beginning, even before he created us, he instituted numerical identifiers. So if God used numbers, maybe there's some significance to it. The fact that it would appear so early, he didn't have to. Last week we took a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where it says there's a time and a season to everything under heaven. Time is a is Another example of a numerical identifier. God set specific dates for the old covenant feasts. And biblically, there are certain numbers that just seem to uh, reoccur again and again. For example, there are nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there are nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Does that mean something? Why nine? There are 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles that make up the 24 elders seated around the, tw- the throne. Is there significance to those numbers? Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. In the desert, rather, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Is there significance to number 40? That's another number you see repeated throughout Scripture. This isn't an exhaustive list. These are notes I added this morning before the service started. 
The number seven is a number that shows up quite frequently. And so some of the training I've been through has, um, has helped me to understand that I, I think there is some spiritual significance. There is biblical significance to numbers. So I, I took the training on, on things like dreams and visions, spiritual gifts, prophetic ministry. I did most of that uh, through John Paul Jackson's ministry, uh, the most intensive anyway. I did it, lots of input from other sources as well, but, um, but I was a student of his uh, Streams Ministries International and his Institute for Spiritual Development courses. I, I was a student of those classes. Then I hosted the classes repeatedly. Then I took training to teach his classes. And then I became a teacher of the people who were being taught to teach the classes. And then eventually they hired me to be the director of ministry operations over all, um, all of his classes and six international training centers. So why did I tell you that? I think I know this stuff. <laughs> I've, I mean this humbly. But there's a pretty good chance that I've invested more hours into the study of this than the rest of you combined. So I feel pretty confident in what I'm talking about. You may not have confidence in me, but I have confidence in me. It's okay if you don't have confidence in me. I'm just trying to communicate. I feel pretty sure about this. Because I've invested more than a decade of my life into the study of it. And so from that streams ministry training, I know that the number seven can represent uh, perfection or completion. Well, what's that based on? Well, it's based on the seven days of creation. Genesis 2, 1 and 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So the number seven can mean something's, something's divinely completed, something is finished. It also represent rest. Now, Scripture is filled with sevens. Along with the seven spirits of God, also, I've already mentioned in Isaiah 11, and the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12, just to name a few, here are some other sevens. There are seven days of creation. There are seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. There's Ephesus, Smoniris, Pergamus, Datara, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Right? Seven days of creation, seven churches of revelation. There are seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The brazen altar, the bronze laver, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat. Are these things just coincidence? Did God have no, did he have no plan? Did he have no system in place? Was there no structure? Is it just, wow, how about that? Isn't that weird? I don't know. If he formed us in our mother's womb, if he knew us before we were born, if he had a plan for salvation before the foundation of the earth, could there be some, some divine structure to the fact that we would see these parallels. Or we'd see repeatedly this, this kind of number coming up. I don't know. But it doesn't end there. There are seven feasts of Israel, the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpet, atonement, 
Tabernacles, seven parables of Jesus in Matthew 13, seven last words of Christ on the cross. I could go through all of it. The seven seals of Revelation 6. I don't know. I'm not a real smart guy, but I'm thinking God's into the number seven. And it doesn't mention the sevens in nature, science, or art. There are seven colors in the rainbow. In Genesis 9.13, God says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Why wasn't it just one color? Why wasn't it just all varying shades of blue or red? Or just different stages of gray? I don't know. It's white, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. The fact that there are seven major notes in a musical scale, there are seven continents on the earth. I don't know, by any measure, even the most superficial observance of the number seven, I know it seems like seven is significant. And so if that's true, would it surprise you to discover that some of these sevens parallel each other? That the number seven excuse me, that mercy is the seventh redemptive gift listed in Romans 12. Mercy is the seventh gift. And that seven is the day of rest in creation. It's the seventh day. And that in the furniture in the tabernacle, the seventh piece of furniture is the mercy seat. I don't know, just coincidence? I think it's more than coincidence. I think sometimes God provides before us clues. I think one of the reasons why God will speak to us in dreams is because he's wooing us. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and the glory of kings to search a matter out. I think God likes to drop little clues in us, and then we go for a treasure hunt. How many of you here are, would consider yourself um, a student of Scripture? That you enjoy, how many of you enjoy studying the Word? I mean, I mean, for some of us, isn't it like this? Is that you find a little nugget, and then you dig, and you dig, and you dig, and you just keep digging until you actually play out that whole vein of gold, right? That, and you start with one thing, and it leads you to the next thing, and then to the next thing, and the next thing. All of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, look at what I found. How intertwined all these different things are. Well, I think here, just the lists of biblical sevens I referenced, I think there's a gold mine there. If you're looking for something new to study in Scripture and see what you come up with, then study the, all, the, all the sevens of Scripture and see what you come up with. I think there's significance to it. You can decide for yourself. So there are a list of gifts of the Spirit. I think there's significance to the, to the number seven. I think there's significance to the fact that uh, mercy is the seventh of the redemptive gifts mentioned. And I think Arthur Burke is probably onto something that, uh, along with Phyllis Tickle and Wayne Jacobson, that the seasons have changed. That the church is at the beginning of a brand new season. And I like the language of a mercy season. So this is in Romans chapter 12. So let's just give some context to, to these verses in Romans 12. Um, we'll do a who, where, when, why 
uh, approach. Who? Uh, Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to, Christ, uh, to Christians who are in Rome. When? Paul wrote uh, Romans toward the end of his three-month stay in Greece, specifically Corinth, on his third missionary journey. You could read Romans 15 and Acts 20 to get a, a better sense of, of what was going on there. Probably written in 58 AD. Some commentaries disagree on that, but 58 AD seems to be the most commonly held date. Well, why did he write this letter to Rome, to the Romans? He seemed to be wanting to communicate two major thoughts, two major themes. In chapters 1 to 11, the gospel, this is the theme, the gospel is God's power to save all who believe. It's just a, you know, maybe the best outline of the gospel message in all of the canon of scripture is in the, that first 11 verses of Romans 12. And then chapter 12, uh, excuse me, uh, verses 12 to, uh, I'm sorry, chapters 1 to 11, he's laying out the gospel message. Chapters 12 to 15, this is his theme. How should we live in Christ? So the first half of the book is, this is how you get in, and the second half is, this is how you live it. And the redemptive gifts are listed at the very beginning of that second section. Paul puts in, in the beginning part of instructing us how to live as Christians, he lists these seven gifts of the Spirit. It's another pretty good argument to say that the gifts of the Spirit ought to be um, an active part of our Christian experience. So here Paul begins to lay a foundation for Christian living. So let's look at the chapter in particular. In um, verses 1 to 2, uh, Paul's communicating that we ought to be a living sacrifice, not conformed to the world systems. In verses 3 to 8, that we are to, in unity, humbly, live out the spiritual gifts that are given by God. And in verses 9 to 21, he drives home the point that we're to do all of this in love. Um, Romans chapter 12 is rich. For those of you who raised your hand saying that you enjoy studying scripture, and if you're looking for a new place to dig, that would be a good location to dig. So let me offer you some definitions. Definitions of the, the seven gifts of the Spirit that are listed here in Romans 12. Is that for me? <laughs> we have any Doctor Who fans here? Anybody watch Doctor Who? Oh man, just a few. Doctor Who is awesome. You gotta watch Doctor Who. I got like the best daughter in the whole world. She's amazing. And so she uh she sent me some ringtones from my phone. Right? And if you're a Doctor Who fan. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the theme song for Doctor Who. That's worth a repeat. <laughs> Come on, man. That's awesome.
And then if I get a text message, you hear this. What the, who knows what that is? It sounds like Jurassic Park. What is it? It's the TARDIS, that's right. When they fire up the TARDIS, that's what my text message saying. So my daughter never listens to my messages. But honey, if you hear this one, thank you for those. Thank you for those ringtones. Anyway. <laughs> She's adorable. Um, where was I? Oh, definitions. Definitions for these seven gifts. I'm going to give you two, two definitions. Uh, one from Strong's Concordance and then... Um, another, another form of definition for the gifts. So, just, uh, again, basic biblical study. If you want to understand um, Scripture better, one way to do even just a surface level of study is to go to Strong's Concordance, see what the meaning of the word is. What was the, in the original language, what, what was the intent of the writer when he, when he um, penned that word? Um, if you don't have a concordance, if you have access to... Uh, a computer, great website for Bible study, blueletterbible.com. They've got concordances, they've got commentaries on there, and it's free. You know, a bunch of different translations. And so you can find Strong's concordance definitions uh, right there. So in Strong's, they define prophet as one uh, who, who offers foretelling and divinely uh, inspirited speech. A servant, they define as a server, an attendant, someone who helps meet the needs of another person. Teacher is a teacher or a master, someone who gives instruction. An exhorter, one to call near, to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen. It's also a name of the Holy Spirit. A giver is to give over. It's not just to give of your resources but to offer impartation. That I give to you the essence of who I am, or I give to you what God's given to me. The ruler is the one who presides over, the superintendent, the protector, the guardian. And then finally, mercy. And it means to help the afflicted, to have heartfelt compassion. Now, the, these seven redemptive gifts are also referred to as the motivational gifts. And some of the research I've done, uh, people have done uh, work on this, and they have likened these seven uh, redemptive or motivational gifts to personality traits or personality types. Anybody like taking a personality test? I mean, they're Myers-Briggs or... I mean, I can't barely pass one up without taking it. I love them, right? Nadine hates them. I find a new one, like, ooh, honey, let's take this one. And she's like, oh, no, screaming out of the room. Well, some people have taken these and they've, um, they've tried to make application to uh, the people who generally have this gift, what might be some of the traits that are associated with them. I think they've, they've made some really good insights. Having been in ministry for a long time and been in ministry with an emphasis on the gifts of spirit for a long time, I've seen that often there are common traits between people who have this particular gift or that particular gift. I think these guys did a pretty good job in laying it out. So this is just another tool uh, to bring definition, to bring uh, understanding. Uh, so for the redemptive gift of prophet, this is how uh, this individual is understood. That they tend to see the world as black and white. 
they don't have a whole lot of room for gray. It's either, it's either in or it's either out. Um, they easily understand and live by spiritual laws. They're highly principled. Again, they, they want to know what the rules of the game are. Tell me what the rules are, and I'll play within the boundaries of the rules. They don't like when things are fuzzy. Um, they're concerned with justice and injustice. There's a tendency to know the mind of God. And not so much the heart of God. They have a strong intuitive sense and a strong faith. They have no problem, no difficulty whatsoever with confrontation. Almost have a gravitational pull toward it. Again, this prophetic person. They're visionary. They see further than other people do. They dislike, though they like rules and regulations, they don't like to be bound. They don't like to be restricted by someone else. There's a passion for excellence. They need to know that there's a destination in mind. So those are the positive traits. When, and that's, that's in the person who's living um, a life with God. Now, a person who has, has these giftings in them, and they're unredeemed, it can come out in less than healthy ways. Well, what do you mean? Can, can people who aren't Christians yet have spiritual gifts? Absolutely they can have spiritual gifts. Joel said it, and Peter repeated it on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. He didn't say all Christian flesh. He didn't say all Hebrew flesh. I mean, and there was a... <laughs> There were all kind of nationalities represented that day. In the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. There are people who have spiritual gifts that are given to them almost from the time that they're born. It's, it's just unredeemed. I think that's why we have some people in the world today who function as psychics, and they really see stuff. They're not all just charlatans. I see revelatory gifts as being like a satellite dish. Right? The gift that I give you is I'm giving you a satellite dish. Now, you can point it at whatever signal you want to. Right? The ones who are redeemed, they take that signal and they point it toward God. The unredeemed, they tend to point to maybe a, a darker channel. Now, I think that so many of those people are outside the church because we have not made any room for them. We don't understand them. We don't like them. We've rejected them. We've made, we've made no place for them. Matter of fact, we've gone to great lengths. Most of the church, I'd say 98% of the church in the world today, has, has basically said, you're not welcome. And I believe God's told me that those are his kids, and he wants his kids back. That could be messy, couldn't it? But if we don't make a place for them to use their God-given gifts in a healthy, life-giving way, who's going to? Are they going to find that in the New Age movement? Are they going to find it in occult practices? We are their only hope. 
And I think some of the best and the brightest that God's put on the earth today are not in our camp because they've not been welcomed in our camp. And it goes back to the pastors who don't like messy churches. Now, I don't know if there's good news or bad news for you. I like messy. I'm really okay with messy. And I'm okay with messy not because, you know, I get this thrill out of chaos. It's because I love those people. They desperately need to be loved. In the same way that Greg and Debbie have a passion for people in recovery, I have a passion for those people who are using their gifts outside the church. I want to rescue them. I want to love them back into the kingdom. Because there are so few people who are willing to do it. So I say that to say this. They can have these gifts and they can function in an unredeemed way. So when the prophet is up, the person with the prophet gift from Romans 12 is operating in an unredeemed way, he could be judgmental. He can have highly vacillating emotions. He could be extremely hard on himself when he fails. He tends to be susceptible to witchcraft. There's biblical basis for that. And he needs, he's terrible at relationships. Doesn't do well with personal interactions at all. It needs to work harder on developing and maintaining relationships. So I understand the prophetic people. I think God's given me an extra measure of mercy and grace to love people that are not so easy to love. The only person who has ever thrown me out of their house, I've been a pastor a long time. <laughs> I went and visited this lady one day, and bless her heart, man, I went to school on pastoring people on this woman. And I'm sitting in her house one day, and we're just talking. I don't know, I don't even remember what the topic was. I wasn't being particularly offensive. I wasn't looking to push her buttons, but I must have. In the middle of our conversation, she looked at me and says, you can go now. I was like, what? She said, you could go. I said, you throwing me out of your house? She says, yes, I am throwing you out of my house. I'm thinking, man, I've never been thrown out of anybody's house before. See, prophetic people, they face rejection because they live a somewhat awkward and weird, unusual life. Most of them have been rejected their whole lives. And so what happens to people who have been rejected a lot, they almost kind of wear it like a force field around them. And they begin to go on offense, meaning I'll reject you before you have an opportunity to reject me. And so her, as years went on, we developed a great friendship. We had a chance to talk about it. And she tell me, she says, look... I was scared to death. No one had ever loved me the way you did. And I figured I better get rid of you before you hurt me bad. And so I did. I just called her the next day. Hey, how you doing? And she's like, I can't believe you're calling me. Why wouldn't I call you? Well, I threw you out of my house yesterday. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> so just a matter of not giving up on them. See, prophetic people, they don't do relationships very well. I'm spending extra time there because it's probably my, my you know, strongest understanding. But the second gift is servant. Now, they, you know, loves to help people. We've got lots of these type of people here at Community Church. Loves to help people, sometimes to their own neglect and detriment. It comes from the Greek word to aid, actually to mean being a waiter. They're amiable and they're compliant. Excellent team player. The servant has uh, 
<laughs> the servant many times will apologize unnecessarily. Does never thinks that they're excellent. Extremely loyal, especially to family. Always reworking behind the scenes, doesn't ever want to be in the limelight. Quickly can survey the room and see what the needs are. They're consistent and steady in life, even keeled. They have a great work ethic. They have pure motives. They assist others without expecting return. And God usually grants great authority, mainly because they're not looking for it. As I go through these, these seven, this is the second of the seven, you might be able, begin to recognize either traits in yourself or in other people. Now, when unredeemed in the servant, one of the problems is they can easily be taken advantage of. Um, they need to set solid boundaries in their life. They're susceptible to a victim mentality. And they can be exploited by, um, they can often be exploited. They can tend to be people pleasers. The teacher. The teacher gift. The teacher can see details that the average person would overlook. A strong sense of responsibility toward others. They have a broad base of understanding. They uh, specialize um, uh, they're a specialist in the sense that they're predisposed to writing and to education. They tend to process information slower than other people, not because they lack the intelligence, but because they have a great desire for deeper understanding. They need to ruminate. They need to let things sit for a while. And they, There's a great need to validate truth. They love to do research, and they love accuracy. They're precise with facts. Deeply, uh, deep sense of family loyalty. Now, on the downside uh, for the teacher, if the gift is unredeemed, um, they can be an enabler by failing to allow others to take responsibility. They can get lost in details. They can be so focused on details that they can... I get lost in them. And sometimes study can be a, a way of escape. Um, there is a susceptibility to a religious spirit uh, because they love the truth and they resist new revelation. For example, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? These are the great biblical students. They, they've, st they've studied for generations, their whole lives, waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Messiah comes but just different than he expected them to come. And so they rejected God. Imagine God shows up in your midst, <laughs> in flesh, and what your, what your whole nation has been waiting for forever, and then you reject them because they didn't come the way you wanted them to. That would never happen today, right? That, wouldn't, that couldn't happen here. The other downside for teachers is they could become legalistic. The exhorter, the fourth of the gifts, they're an encourager, a consoler, a counselor, great intercessors. They're always busy, always diligent, uh, relational. They, they're the ones who will be connected between different groups of people. 
the word exhorter comes from the Greek word paraclete, which means the one who comes alongside. They're evangelistic. They're world changers. They tend to be excellent communicators, uh, and mostly because they are so highly relational. Everybody likes to have an exhorter or an encourager in their life, right? Um, They adapt quickly to different situations. They, too, tend to be visionaries. Now, when it's unredeemed, they can be susceptible to talking too much. Uh, They need to allow others to own their own problems. They can go with their feelings over principles, and they do need to develop character and integrity. The giver. The giver is liberal in generosity, sometimes extravagant, but never wasteful. Most of the givers that I've met, people with this gift, they tend to be successful in business and generous with their resources. Uh, They have an innate ability to produce at high levels. Um, There are some people, they they can just see money-making opportunities. What no one else sees in the room, they walk in and they know that's going to work. I have a good friend of mine in Washington, Dwayne Coffin. And boy, that guy can just figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work when it comes to business. They tend to be non-confrontational. They're adaptable and flexible. They have diverse interests and involvements. They have high nurturing ability. They usually have a high level of favor. Proverbs 18.16 says your gift will make a way for you. They tend to be giving the one who gives gifts. And it usually opens doors for them. Though that's not why they do it. They're solutions orientated. They tend to be independent. They want to resist absolutes, keep many options as open as possible. Um, I'm not sure why, but it just seems that uh, women with this giver gift just seem to have a, a greater sensitivity or radar to uh, hidden agendas, and they can pick it out. Uh, when the giver is unredeemed, they can be susceptible to control. Well, they can give, instead of giving with no strings attached, they give, but there are strings attached. Um, So when I say they're susceptible to control, not being controlled, but being controlling. Unredeemed, instead of giving what's been given to them, they can be susceptible to greed. They'll just accumulate it for themselves. Sometimes they need to learn how to entirely trust God. And if they're fear-driven, they'll be given over to things like hoarding. Okay, the ruler. This is the sixth of the gifts. Now, what's interesting about these next two gifts is that, um, you know, there's some that say as the church has gone through changes from one season to another, we've gone from this ruler season to the mercy season. So here are some of the identifiers for the ruler. They have strong administrative responsibility. They're able to extend resources further than most people. They're implementers. They're builders. They operate with high levels of excellence. They love pressure. 
They're solutions-orientated. Rarely are they stagnant. They're always moving, always progressing. Stay stand alone on principles, and loyalty is extremely important to them. Violate loyalty, and you're dead to them. They can be the best. They can get the best out of the worst of people. Excellent with time management. Can juggle many things simultaneously. But when unredeemed, the ruler can be controlling. They can be susceptible to a lack of resources. They can fall short uh, in the area of nurturing. They can be um, overly strict disciplinarian. And they often put those around them under the same level of high pressure. That's a pretty good definition of some of the things that worked very well in the last season and are going to be in contrast to the way things are going to change in the new season. So the last one, the mercy season. They tend to be compassionate. They're benefactors. They're um, empathetic, sensitive. Uh, they help others by embracing their pain. They're often well-liked. They rarely have enemies. They're a safe person for the wounded. They discern people well. They read people very well. They can uh, sense uh, and attract the wounded and the rejected. They have a heart for those people. They're feelings-orientated. They're intuitive, 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 intuitive. They know the heart of God. They love worship and enter God's presence easily. They love beauty. They work hard. They're drawn to the prophet. And they, they can work very well together. They need intimacy and physical touch. They like hugs. Mostly because they're designed to help people heal. They dislike confrontation. The mercy gift is dramatically different than the other six gifts. The mercy hears God with his heart, while others tend to hear God with their mind. God uses the gift of mercy to bring the spiritual climate into right alignment through the blessing of presence. Have you ever met someone and just by their presence being there, there's a calming effect? I think we see that most often with mothers and their small children, right? I remember this one Sunday, we're doing a baby dedication. Two of my best friends, they had their first son. And they're doing a dedication. They give me, um, they give me a little Boaz. So I'm praying for Boaz and, and lifting them up. Boaz, yeah. Boaz and Jacob, two good Old Testament names. So I got a little bow in my hands, and I'm praying for him, and he is screaming bloody murder. You were thinking that I was, like, sticking needles in him or something. This kid is screaming bloody murder. So I pray for him as quickly as I can. Give him back to mom. Boom. In an instant, he stopped. Right? There's something on her that had this amazing calming effect on her. There are some people that could come into the office, and it's like, ah, oh, everything is peaceful. Right? Other people come into the office, it's like it's all crazy chaos. Right? I think some of these people have that, that calming effect, much like a mother with their infant. That's the dynamic that the mercy gift can have. That's a good thing. Is there any of us that couldn't use more of that kind of settling peace in our lives? Now, when unredeemed, the mercy gifted person, they could become an enabler, 
They can have a victim mentality. They can easily be exploited, and they need to set firm boundaries. So, how many of you can see yourselves described in one of these gifts? Anybody can see different ones I mentioned? It's like, hey, that sounds like me. How many of you can identify somebody else? Ooh, that reminds me of somebody else, right? Okay. Yeah, most people find that. So, um, so this is what I'm going to do. I have, um, I have two documents. One is a, um, it's kind of like a personality test. It's a questionnaire for these redemptive gifts. If you like taking those kind of tests, uh, when I put the sermon up online today on Facebook, I'll put links, uh, I'll, I'll put a PDF file for the test. You can download it. It's self-explanatory how to take it. So you can figure out what your redemptive gift might be. Um, and then I'll add a second file, which basically gives the, the descriptions that I just went through, the, the good and the bad side. Uh, the redeemed or the unredeemed side to the people uh, with the gifts. For those of you who like it or are interested in it, it'll be available to you when I put the sermon up. If that's not your cup of tea, that's fine too. I completely understand it. That's why I didn't give them all out today. I figure I'll make it available to you. The, uh, the redemptive gift questionnaire, there's actually two of them. One has, a, one has 90 questions, the other has 140 questions. And, um, and it's like, you know, ABCD type, type of thing. And then I'll put up the the one that has uh, that describes each type. Like I said, I love these kind of things. I collect them. Nadine, it drives her crazy. She's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Forget it. Go away. And so, so I don't bother her with it. Okay, so because, um, because my, my springboard into the topic of mercy is off of the seventh redemptive gift of the Spirit, uh, Romans chapter 12, I felt that that um, you know, it was um, what's the word I'm looking for? It would be helpful to do a second introduction to the topic from the perspective of where my launching point is—the seventh redemptive gift out of um, that list of gifts in Romans chapter 12. So next week we'll begin to take a more specific look at mercy itself uh, with. Uh, the beatitude from Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you uh, would make us a church of people that love one another. I pray, Lord, that you would make of us a church of people that live secure in the knowledge of your great and extravagant love for us. Lord, I pray for us that in the most healthy and the most loving ways, that you would make us a church of people who live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would live active lives empowered by your Spirit just as you intended. Lord, could we get the best parts of your gifts, the way you purposed them to be active in your church, without all the messy parts that have caused so much damage throughout church history. There's got to be a right way to do this, Lord. Would you lead us into that right way? In a way that's healthy, in a way that's mature, in a way that's life-giving to us, to one another, to our community. Do that for us, O oh God. And Lord, I ask you to have mercy on us, that we would begin to experience your mercy in our lives, even now. 
And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.